Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Here's your host, Alex Garrett. Well, welcome inside to this edition of Alex Garrett Podcasting. And with me today from the New York Times is a prof- uh, philosophy columnist, lead uh, philosophy columnist there, Simon Critchley. First of all, Simon, thanks for joining me today. Nice to be here, Alex. So you have a new book out, uh, 35 Shortcuts for Life, is told by you in your new book, Bald. So I've got to ask you, philosophy, Pluto, We've got, you know, Manuel Kant. We've got all these different names. Is bold philosophy what you're aiming for here with the name of the book? I'm kind of curious. Uh, well, it's meant to be a bit of a joke. You know, that's the idea. I'm bald. And uh, so firstly, that, which in a sense is uh, is something we could, it's funny in a way. People make jokes about it. And uh, the way I'm trying to write in the book is bald. It's kind of blunt and straightforward and uh, not kind of hiding my head under academic wigs and comb-overs and toupees. That's the idea. Well, I know that you work at the new school, so I'll get into that in a little bit. But the reason why I mentioned that right at the top is because a lot of the philosophers we know kind of identified with one synonym for themselves like pluto is a plato is plato 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 is the cartoon yes plato is plato so are you trying to identify your philosophy through one term which is kind of like an everyday term bald i'm i'm it just it's an interesting could be yeah i I, you know i mean you know my name's simon but it could be baldy i mean plato funnily enough means in greek means broad-shouldered and you know I'm glad we you mentioned nothing. that because his book is pretty broad-shouldered, meaning so many pages to go through. It just, it takes you know years to finish, right? It well, yeah, it does. It's it's uh, it's a lifetime's uh, a lifetime's activity, and so so in a sense, names are nicknames. Names used to be nicknames, and so uh, people weren't so attached to their names as they are now. So. Uh, bald too for me i don't mind so are you you're you're in new york city i guess at the new school so what um yeah i am being a columnist for the new york times has the city has the philosophy of the city shaped you in any way to you know write and then become the columnist well it's led to i mean the the, the interesting thing about being here i got here in 2004 and um it, you know i had to um I suppose raised my game a bit in terms of being a 
a teacher and because there were some very smart people around me and also you you know you bump into people along the way in new york in a way in which it's it's easier it's a big city there's lots of people around so i became friends with uh, uh an editor at the new york times and then we we began to work together and then we had the idea in 2010 of starting a philosophy column which um we did uh because it was online at the time the at, at the time the new york times didn't really care that much about online it was still very much the print newspaper and um and so there was just there was a website that I didn't really care much about so we got tremendous freedom on that website to develop a column and then we found uh, we had an audience uh, did you disappear oh no i'm here i'm here i'm, I'm okay. actually listening I'm oh right I, as you I, talk. It must be another another i got an unknown call from somebody unknown that's strange huh. and um it's uh so we got this you know, to use this as a kind of a playground to experiment and then when then when the the shift to online happened in whenever that was fully uh, 2013 14 whatever we were we had a community of readers and we if you if, if you went to the times now with the idea let's do a philosophy column they they just laugh at you so but because we already existed and we used we were able to exploit this transition from uh print to online we 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 kind of made the best of it and we've been going for 11 years now um, well congratulations and i say congratulations because i feel that as we've seen with so many papers longevity longevity of columns sometimes can be a rarity no yeah yeah i mean we're the longest i think we're the longest uh standing series at the new york times now i mean there's been everything else has changed around us editors have come and gone and there's been a lot of controversy around that in the last year and uh and so it is but we we just keep on and we 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 very much uh we uh we keep our heads down and we try not to look you know to the side too much and just keep moving on and we, we we're not gonna you know we're not uh we're not the most important thing to the new york times as far as the new york times is concerned we're a kind of you know we're a, we're a small detail but we're able to um we've been able to carry on which is which is great because the the the, the really cool thing about the stone the column is that you know i'll meet people here and there or, or you know when i used to travel when that was possible uh, who were who were stone readers? They've been reading for you know reading the column for years, and um, and so there's a, a small but significant. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that will read little bits of philosophy, and we also proved, I think, fairly fairly conclusively that uh, there's an there's an audience for philosophy. Uh, the questions that philosophy deals with are questions which are of general interest but as but they have to be approached in a way that's clear and free of jargon and which can be um, understood by the general reader as they used to say so uh, yeah well one thing that i i wonder now as we're talking about this is a big thing in philosophy if i'm not mistaken is the means to an end and right now we're all literally trying to figure out how to end covid so do you think, uh, from your philosophical viewpoint, that there's been a positive means to an end 
to get rid of this or has there been too much means to figure this out like what in the means no, to an end perspective well i mean you know philosophy isn't science i mean some people think it is but it's not philosophy is just the uh the persistent kind of scratching away at questions that continue to bother us you know questions about the nature of justice or love or whatever it might be and um science which you know epidemiology is part of science has uh you know come into the center of our lives in the last the last year and we've been fortunate enough to develop these vaccines and you know you know you can feel the difference in the last last few months so there's that there's that sense in which there was a there is still a pandemic and uh, but people are being vaccinated and that's uh, that's an issue where science is is of you know of paramount importance. But um, what happened to people in lockdown and in the last year is also philosophical in the sense in which people got time to reflect and think about what was of value to them. Um, and also they were perhaps melancholy, sad, uh, or whatever it might be. These are, these are philosophical moods. So it's, a very, it's been a very philosophical moment, I think. People have asked deep and search, searching questions uh, about themselves and about the world. And then coming out of it, um, as everybody knows, I mean, I wrote, you know, uh, a book I wrote, a Few, good, good few years ago now was uh, on a cheerful topic was a little book on suicide uh, called Notes on Suicide and a lot of the reading I was doing on that uh, from specialists they, they, uh, there's one one conclusion which is that the, uh, the most popular time of the year for suicide is the spring mm-hmm. when things are getting better that's when things get worse when things are getting better so there's a way of looking at the pandemic as you know, in in you know, if you like, as a uh, at an epidemiological level, here's a, a virus which we need to isolate and then vaccinate against, and then we can return to normal. But there's a deeper level, which is that what we've gone through in the last year will have effects over the next you know the next period of our lives, and uh, that's also going to be a a moment when philosophical reflection is is just hugely important. Otherwise, uh, you know, we're just lost in a kind of sea of, you know, opinion and. I am this so glad you're talking about the, your writing because I want to ask you. I understand from the guys at Newman Communications that you are a very funny guy. You're witty. You got some sharp, uh, you know, inviting takes. So through your writing at the New York Times and in general, how were you able to keep your audience entertained through this whole ordeal? Well, we we sort of we. It's become less, we've done less over the last year because I mean, the New York Times is very precious real estate. And uh, there's COVID on the one hand and uh, Trump on the other. And that occupies a lot of media space. So we we did different things. We did uh, maybe publish less things over the last year because there was just no space in the in the newspaper. And then secondly, we did some... Uh, live talk events uh, early on during the pandemic that were a lot of fun playing with different formats and uh, finding an audience that way. So we've, you know, we've, uh, 
because you, you don't you don't really know who your audience is, right? I mean, it's it's um, I mean, week week by week as this thing rolls around, um, you, I, I can say I bump into readers and uh, people that engage with the column, but you know, unless I do something, unless I write something myself, and then you get, I could tell you about that. That that yeah, here's a good example. So I did the last thing I wrote. I wrote personally was a piece on David Bowie, which came out in January and it was about um the fifth anniversary of his uh, of his death and um and that went out and then I got there were no comments the comments were not active on that sometimes they won't allow comments but I got you know just a flood of emails and messages and all sorts of stuff which took days and days to go through it's fascinating and you just, you know, and and you the amazing thing about writing if you can say things and it resonates with someone out there and they will let you know what they think. Mm. And that's usually really interesting and really, you know, really engaging and satisfying. So, you know, you meet people that way. It's cool. I'm very curious because I feel like we all want to have intellectual conversations. There's a lot of memes of like, let's have that 3 a.m. conversation under the stars, those types of sentimental Mm -hmm. intellectual conversations. But let's face it, before COVID, nobody was really taking that time. So do you think, you know, maybe as a population, we wanted more and became a little more intellectual, hung, intellect hungry during this pandemic? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think it's forced it's forced everybody just to take a step back and, um, and uh, you know, and a deep breath. And obviously breath has been at the center of the last year in all sorts of horrible ways. And the... And just to kind of, you know, think about what we're doing and what, uh, you know, why we're spending our time in the way we're spending it, given that we know that life is doesn't last that long, and it's, um, and it's, uh, we're, you know, we're obsessed with being busy and frantically moving from and traveling and things like that. And I think it's, I think it's allowed really deep questions about. Uh, you know our our lives to be raised in the last year. I think that's that's so. I think that's really, really good and really promising. And the question is whether we hang on to that as we move forward. And that's that's unclear to me at the moment. But hopefully we will. Hopefully this will have changed things, and people will be a bit deeper, more reflective, and uh, take time. Right? There's a there's a lovely uh, line of Wittgenstein where he says. Um, what does one philosopher say to another philosopher? And the answer is, take your time. And there's something about taking your time, which is really important. And in the normal, what we think of as the normal hubbub of life, we we let time just slip through our fingers. And we think mm. of that as, you know, fine, we're busy, we're working, whatever. But we've been forced to step back and take time. And of course, that's that's anxiety-inducing. That's uh, that's uh, not what we're used to, and not what we we think that we should be doing. But maybe the last year has been a tremendous opportunity to, you know, to kind of, you know, to to, to allow us to to reveal what sure. we're actually up to. Simon, yeah. this is this the, is this is great because I, my other question would be then, and we'll get to your book in a minute, but this. This whole idea of I don't mind down. about the book. I'm happy to. <laughs> well, because I I feel like I'm concerned for myself that I'm going to take back on the whole pre-COVID workload and still not find that time that I had during pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so, how do we take on the workload 
but then have that time for thinking deeper and, and managing it. Uh, I feel like as human beings, we're just going to go back to the habits that were pre-COVID, but how can we avoid that? And can philosophy actually help us avoid going back into those bad habits before COVID? Philosophy can give us, uh, you know, it can give us concepts, can give us shapes, patterns, which enable us to, to think uh, deeply about, about things. So it can, it can, when we have, when we're forced into that moment, as we were, you know, this time last year of lockdown, or we might be thinking, you know, they're feeling at a loss, then philosophy can give you a kind of vocabulary for thinking these things through. In that sense, I mean, philosophy doesn't, doesn't boil cabbages. Philosophy doesn't, doesn't do anything in that sense. It doesn't, it's not like a, a can opener or anything. Philosophy gives you uh, vocabularies for thinking things through. And uh, it's really important to, to hang on to that. And then, and then are we going to resume our normal lives? I Maybe. I think a lot of people want to. I think there's, I've got different things to say about this. I think on the one hand, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, I teach for a living and I've been teaching on Zoom for a year. And uh, I think there's, it's remarkable what you can do uh, on Zoom in terms of you can, at one level, you can get closer to students through the distance. You can, uh, you know, they're, they're Zooming me at home. I'm Zooming them at home. And we're, we're talking in a way in which would be harder to do in, you know, a university in an office. So there's a, in a strange way, it's allowed for more intimacy, which is, which is nice. On the other hand, uh, you feel that people are at this point, you know, a year in are really beginning to lose it. They're tired. Wow. They're, Amazing. They're stressed just, out and they're exhausted. You were touching on another point that I was going to ask you because mm -hmm. philosophy wise, Plato and all these guys, all these philosophers would be in the public square for hours and not have yeah. fatigue talking philosophy. Um, I feel like we're not at that, you know, we're never going to get to that point, but how were those philosophers of the day able to talk so much and not get tired when in today's world we get Zoom <laughs> fatigue like at the drop of a hat? Well, they, uh, well, the, 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 the truth is that, you know, uh, philosophy in ancient Greece was, uh, there were some women involved, but it was mainly men. And uh, it was a slave-owning society, and there were servants, and other people were doing the work. So, in a sense, the uh, what you see in Plato's dialogues is the effect of a certain luxury, a certain privilege. You can't, you can't forget that. And also that the, um, I mean, Plato describes Socrates, this character who speaks to people in the in the public square in the agora in Athens, but. Uh, Plato himself set up uh, an academy, you know, uh, which was a you know a private school, just outside of Athens, which is one of the one of the topics I deal with in the book is is actually what was what Plato's academy was and what you know, we think we know what academic life is. Well, the academic goes back to this idea there was an academy in a little kind of uh, green area just outside the city and Plato built a building that was funded by money that he got from uh, all sorts of sponsors and you know in, in, in modern terms we private investors and he built himself a school built himself a kind of research facility and then um, began to write down these dialogues which were where the hero is 
his teacher Socrates. So philosophy is not an innocent practice. We can't forget that. It only happens in certain, it re does require a certain luxury in a way, and it, does, uh, and it does presuppose a whole set of social arrangements which can be, which can be questioned. So um, I'm not uh, a rose-tinted rose spectacles when it comes to philosophy in that sense. We're talking with uh, author of Bald, the Philosophy, the Philosophical Shortcuts, 35 of them by Simon Critchley. He was the New York Times leading columnist on philosophy. Okay, so in the book, you've got 35 shortcuts. We don't have time for yeah. all 35 yet, but no. give us a breakdown because I feel like there could be some humorous ways or humorous shortcuts. Like, can philosophy provide some humor for us to get through to cope with all of this? Sure. I mean, it's uh, it's full of jokes. I mean, it's uh, so yeah. The the book is. I mean, the book is basically everything I've written for the New York Times, pretty much in the last eleven years. And we go from uh, you know things like happiness to there's an essay on Mormonism. There's a whole bunch of things on on uh, on religion and uh, a lot of stuff on what was going on in ancient Greece. European situation, David Bowie, Philip K. Dick. It's uh, stuff on science, and uh, you know, it's 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 meant to be accessible and uh, you know, entertaining and engaging. To educate and to amuse would be would be enough for me. Well, it's amazing you say that because I think that philosophy had its muses as well, did it not? Like that was kind of a a big thing that these people would sort of not gossip, but talk about certain leaders of the time. I mean, Plato also made fun oh, sure, of yeah. the leaders of the time that they use as their muse. Oh, yeah. Well, the muses were the, you know, there's the seven muses and the uh, they were, actually there were statues of the muses uh, outside the academy of, uh, of Plato. We're not exactly uh, clear why, and we have no, there are no, uh, re no remnants of that, but we, that's, that's what legend says. And in terms of, yeah, the politics of the time, yes. I mean, the, the, the thing to point out is that philosophy in, uh, in Plato is, is deeply, deeply critical of democracy. Uh, democracy is uh, the, the way politics is done in, in Athens at the time. And Plato thinks it's, you know, it, it's, very, it's very attractive in a way, but it's not the best way to govern a society. The best way to govern a society is, is to have people in charge who actually know what they're doing. <laughs> and those people are philosophers. Therefore, philosophers should rule. So the, the, the argument you find in Plato's Republic is an argument for the philosopher king. So the idea that philosophy is somehow linked to democracy, it's a nice idea, but no one said that, you know, until someone like John Dewey in the early 20th century. Philosophy is largely at, at odds with the idea of democracy. It's, you know, so... Um, well, you know, I'm yeah. also thinking that, the, the, you know, French Revolution had, what, Descartes, they had all these philosophers of the time sort of egging on the revolution. And then I always think Adam Smith, though he's an economist, he also had a philosophical uh, viewpoint on the economy. And that's kind of what guides us. They say that's the invisible hand, right? Well, different things. I mean, Descartes was the 17th century, and he was involved in the 
you know, in the wars of religion in the 17th century, he was a soldier. Um, and then, you know, in the French Revolution at the end of the 18th century, then you've got there are philosophical ideas which have an effect, uh, which lead to the French Revolution. And then what Adam Smith is up to is something different again. You know, he's um, trying to describe uh, the way in which commercial society functions. And uh, I mean, what people forget about Adam Smith, Adam Smith here is seen as a kind of right wing figure, which he wasn't at all. He was a, a kind of an old fashioned liberal. And he wants, he thought that there was a propensity to, for people to, to trade, to barter. And he thought that was linked to uh, what he called moral sentiments, feelings of sympathy with each other. So he was, you know, that was before the French Revolution. So the French Revolution, yeah, was, was driven. I mean, it's the, the ideas. By the Enlightenment, no? uh, Yes, but yeah. But uh, ideas can do terrible things sometimes. We mustn't forget that. It's not that. Uh, ideas are good and we need to put them into effect, that can have a disastrous consequence. So it has to be, you have to look at these things, you know, really carefully, right? I mean, you know, so you have liberty, fraternity, equality, good, apparently. But what did that lead to? That led to public executions in the middle of Paris and a kind of terror for a number of years. And that led, and the power vacuum of the French Revolution led to the emergence of uh, a military dictator, Napoleon. Yeah. And it took a long while to get rid of him. So, and he was also, a, he was also deeply philosophically interested in Napoleon, fascinating figure. But yeah, so philosophy is not, it's not as if there's one thing. Philosophy is, uh, you know, basically is a set of questions which people have been asking themselves for thousands of years. And uh, we do it all the time, you know, Am I happy? What is happiness? These types of things, and what philosophy can offer us is, is a more is a more formal and kind of rigorous way of thinking these issues through, and uh, and the, you know and, it, and it's important to you know look at as many different philosophical views as possible, so that you know you're not otherwise you just a, you become a dogmatist right just end up I'm this or I'm that. The point is that. We have you know, several thousand years of people thinking all sorts of stuff. And the point is to know as many of, the, of those vocabularies as possible, because that gives you a kind of really broad palette to think things through. You know, I, I also you just mentioned liberty. I think philosophically here in America, uh, Patrick Henry was kind of philosophical, right? With the give me liberty, give me death. I mean, that statement has carried on through through centuries now. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe. I think liberty is a, you know, is a good, who says this? I forget, someone says this in the 19th century. Liberty is a very good horse to ride, but you need to ride it somewhere. Well, <laughs> if you just, I was going to say, if you just, think that somewhere was unfortunately the capital on January 6th, no, th- I mean, th- is there a philosophical tie to that? No, I think, I think there's a kind of, there's a kind of, uh, you know, liberty is just spoken of, uh, in in the United States, as a thing in itself, as as a good in itself, liberty is something which has to be has to be shaped. It has, it's a horse that has to be ridden somewhere. You have to go somewhere with it. If it's just liberty for the sake of liberty, that can just be a kind of arbitrariness. That can be you know that can go in all sorts of different directions. And also, um, so I think there's a, 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 a say. So for example, in the American context. 
every political figure figure is is uh, you know in favor of liberty everyone's in favor of freedom so what does how do you begin to think about that what do those different claims mean how do they measure up how do you assess them uh, which is the which is the strongest claim at that point you've got some you're doing some philosophical thinking right? rather than just saying freedom and then you hear it a certain way you know freedom can mean seven different things mm. so when um but yeah oh my word my phone is is blowing up uh <laughs> sorry about, it's uh, all good I, I am so glad that we're talking about this because um as i mentioned to you in text i'm i love philosophy i have the republic on my phone through apple books but um it's, it's so many pages i gotta keep going with it it's, it's like a process really to just keep up with it so you're a philosopher yeah. you've got you've got this column and where can people find you by the way what website uh oh uh well and i've got the simoncritchley.org there's a yeah that's where i keep my a lot of my stuff i don't really have a web uh, there's a website simoncritchley.org i guess is the place to look and we will uh, direct people there but i've got to ask you this and maybe some don't know mm -hmm. and i'm sure you write about it but maybe some don't know uh your favorite philosopher there's so many to pick from but who inspires you in this field uh daily I think they're all they're all right and they're all wrong. You know, it, it's a question. The more you know, the you know, no, there's no there's no one. I mean, I'm closest to uh, the the philosopher that I guess I'm I've been closest to over the years is someone called Emmanuel Levinas, who is a a French Lithuanian philosopher during the 20th century, and he's the uh, the philosopher I've been. Uh, I, I guess most in love with for the longest period of time, Emmanuel Levinas, and he's a you know for many people he wouldn't even be a considered a real philosopher. And that's kind of why it's important that you highlight him because you do consider him an actual philosopher, which is I, I like people who sort of buck the mainstream. Like you know it has to be Plato, it has to be Kant, it has to be this. There can be others that we consider as well, right? Oh yeah, yeah. There, there's a there are many, many, many others, and it's um, and there are different counter traditions, and you know, you and the more that you know, the more that you'll find. So I think Plato's a. It's it's important to read Plato. I'm fundamentally, you know, at odds with uh, the spirit of Plato's philosophy, and uh, I think it's a really dangerous dangerous vision of of human human affairs but it's important to read him absolutely <laughs> I, I and that's the, that's the last question with technology over the last since especially since you've been here in new york with technology mm -hmm. over the rise since 2000 has philosophy do you find taken a back seat or are your students Every year since you've come here and started the new school, have they been energized to learn about the philosophical roots of, of thinking? Uh, I think it's, I think the internet in a strange way has been good for philosophy. In It's been really bad for the novel, really bad for kind of long form reading and really bad for all sorts of other things. But for philosophy in terms of the ability to communicate difficult stretches of thought in a way that's accessible uh in like small bites it's been yeah it's been pretty good and um you know what we've done with the 
the Times column is kind of evidence of that, that you can do quite sophisticated philosophical reflection in the context of a you know major newspaper and find an audience for that. And so that's something that is made possible through the internet. That's something which which the the freedom of online um, online publication has, has made possible. There's you know there's a thousand things that you can say against the rise of the internet, but at least it's been good for philosophy to some extent. Yeah, I would say that. Will we ever have an age of reason again in this technological boom? I don't think there was an age of reason. I think there was a. I think it's a way of talking about the past, which was not true. People talk about the 18th century as an age of reason. It was an age where reason was always in conflict with something else, with say religious belief, with superstition. I think that we we simplify the past, and maybe we need to simplify the past. So I think what what you find in in human beings, human beings have a tendency towards. They, they can reason, they can be rational, more or less, and they can be swayed easily by powerful, uh, powerful emotions. And we're both. And I think all moments of human history are characterized by, by both. I think it's always a, it's always a fight. It's always a struggle between, um, between forms of reasoning and forms of emotional life. I don't think reason is the answer. I think reason can be, uh, cold and blind and brutal you know if mm. it's if it's not attentive to the emotional life but if emotions are just given full sway then you end up with even more terrible situations so and that's why i would need, say that we need Simon, some kind of oh, proper balance i was going to say instead of just reacting to a cnn article do you then say well maybe we can take a look at this from a philosophical view maybe that'll keep us level-headed i think we need to uh yeah, we need to learn to moderate our uh, our news media diets. That's for sure. I think the I think one thing, I mean, one rabbit hole that I went down last year, as a lot of people did, was just becoming addicted to um, you know cable news, uh, you know, in the evening, and you know, it's it's just it's like crack. It's it's awful. It's pointless. You can get that. You need you need to get the news. You don't need this constant kind of feed of, of breaking news and and kind of semi-stories and this constant feeling of anxiety. And that's not what it is to be an informed human being. So to that extent, um, breaking those habits is, is really important. And also, I think, I think at this point in somewhere like the United States, I mean, we're free of what's been, you know, a really... Uh, awful period of time and just it, you know and also a very narcissistic period here that america is so deeply obsessed with itself <laughs> and with the way in which it's seen and it's exhausting and terrible things are happening elsewhere in the world like what's happening in myanmar now what's happening in hong kong what's happening to the uyghur muslims in china things like that this uh, or what's happening in mozambique right now and these things need to be attended to and that so people need to be informed by the news in a way that doesn't just whip them up, stir them up, and that's uh, and that's yeah, and that's 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 really important to democracy. That's what they used to call the fourth estate. That was what the press used to be about. So the idea of you know of turning on the TV or whatever it might be, or just going onto social media and getting kind of amped up by what you're seeing, 
that's uh, that's terrible. I think, and it, it leads people astray. It leads, you know, it leads perfectly nice, you know, middle-aged ladies, perhaps with some worries about, you know, whether their kids or grandchildren should get vaccinated into becoming members of QAnon. You know, in about uh, two days. Yeah. Yep. And that's uh, and that's that's really worrying. And that's not so. I think it, there's a tendency, not a tendency. I think the the uh, the media bring out or the media exaggerate what's worst uh, in, in in us uh, repeated, and that's what we have to learn to kind of step back from. And hopefully, you know, hopefully after a year of this, you know, we'll just we we can step back a little and think more. Think compassionately, but think you know coolly about what's what's going on. And to do that would be more philosophical. Well, Simon Critchley, this has been a real honor, and I'd love to have you back, as there's so much more to get into. But SimonCritchley.org, C-R-I-T-C-H-L-E-Y, dot org, <laughs> uh, the philosophy of Critchley, I'll call it. And uh, please come back with more updates as the book continues, and as as we get through this pandemic, come back and tell us more of what you're seeing. From sure, the philosophical we'll lens. I'm Alex Garrett. You got it. And I'm Alex Garrett, where we're always adapting.